Welcome to 11.8 again, and we're going to do another Bond movie. What are we doing? We're doing Goldfinger this, this week. So with me is two of my friends, Justin, who's with me. I've known him for many years, and uh, you know him as Ian Bill. But oh, fuck. <laughs> that's a <laughs> so, yeah, Justin, how you been? <laughs> Since we... Yeah, great. <laughs> Turned into a bloody wannabe celebrity now, haven't I? <laughs> Yeah, good. Not too bad. Yeah, looking forward to uh, talking about chocolate. Uh, Goldfinger. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and also Samir, who seems to be our sort of Bond um, encyclopedia, living encyclopedia. So uh, yeah, Samir, how you been since we um, since we last did this? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Uh, enjoying myself and um, been busy. And uh, how can I say, watch Goldfinger again. Really enjoyed it and uh, looking forward to tonight's uh, review, Paul. Thanks for the introduction. Then, does anyone want to start with a fact, a rent, a, an observation? Um, well, guys, you'll you're, you're remember, you'll remember I made a bit of a, uh, an idiot of myself uh, because yeah. I'd said at the end of Dr. Doctor, Doctor no, uh, I don't know if it was actually on, on the recording, but I said, well, which is the, where's the bit with the duck in it? And I was reminded that that was a different film and that one's coming. So upon watching this one. You found uh, the duck. Uh, the, the duck is in, in pretty much the opening scene. So that, that caused quite uh, some hysterics. And, and actually, I must confess, what I wanted to try and do for this one today was to sort of come into the, into the shot uh, and sort of rise up onto my screen with a duck on my head. But I couldn't. I couldn't fabricate it, and I'm a little bit annoyed about that because uh, I thought that would have been that would have been quite amusing. Yeah, that that particular scene always makes me laugh. But actually, this morning I got quite irritated when I watched it again. Well, because he it just, threw it really hard and probably killed the duck. Well, potentially, but that that it wasn't actually a duck. If you look, it looked more like a gull. Yes, yeah, it did. And, yeah. and it and it actually looked like it was alive once because it had a wing kind of like flapping. Well, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to turn my screen up because this bit's a bit dark. And well, um, I have to review that. Well, the thing is, is that it was submerged to start with. And they go, but why did? But but did you notice though? They as he comes out of the water, they do. You know, you get this a few times in films this era now, where they actually speed the film up. I was just going to mention that actually, yeah. But you can see as he, Connery obviously struggles a little bit to get the old the old help, the old mask off and that, and it just sort of speeds up and he just lobs it. Yeah, it's just like <laughs> he comes out of the water all nice and slow, and he sort of goes like that, and he suddenly goes, you know, and and the ducks, you know, I don't know if he's trying to get it alive and flying again. I don't know, but it's uh, yeah, I found that a little bit strange. Why you would sort of speed that that section up? Yeah. But the important bit about that um, part of the movie. That's the actual beginning of where all the Bond movies would have a mini story at the start. Goldfinger was the first one to have that. Oh, you mean this sort of the, the introduction before the credits? Yeah, yeah, you know where they have that mini yeah story introduction before the credits sort of thing. And Goldfinger was, was the first movie to have it. Yes, it was. Yeah, because if you look at From Russia with Love and Doctor No, they didn't have that. That was the first movie to have it. And mm. another thing about Goldfinger, if you noticed. Uh, Guys, uh, the quality was slightly different. It was more aimed for this time for the American audience. The last two movies were, I know this sounds a little bit silly, but for the European audience, uh, the Caribbean audience and North America, and when they meant North America, they didn't mean the USA, they meant Canada. 
and they were quite surprised how successful they were in the US, the, the, the first two. So they decided Goldfinger will be slightly different and go for the American market. Mm. You could definitely tell there was a difference in the, the whole flow of the film. And uh, I noted that Terence, Terence Young didn't direct this. No, there's a story behind that. Uh, Terence Young was promised a percentage uh, from Dr. No and uh, from Russia with Love. And what happened when they came to this, uh, they asked Terence, but uh, Brock, uh, Albert Broccoli and Saltzman, Harry Saltzman, had not paid him his percentage. So he said, thank you, but no thank you, maybe next time. And that's why they had Guy Hamilton who took over for this one. Mm, you can definitely tell it's different. I was going to say that you can definitely tell it's different. So, how, so did that work out for for the better or worse? Well, you, we never know how it would have been if um, Terence Young would have made it. But if overall, yes, it did work out well because it was the first blockbuster uh, Bond movie, and this was the actual movie that made Sean Connery from a a, a major star into a uh, a megastar. Well, you did. You did comment on that last time on on during Rush with Love. You said he's he's. I think Paul, you said about the train scene. He was very naive, um, but you, know, you were sort of saying he's settling into his uh, into his role as Bond. Um, and actually, watching this film, I was thinking about those two things. And and I think, yeah, for me, this is kind of like the first of seeing him settling into that and Bond becoming Bond. Well, he's very he's very confident in this, almost 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 a degree where he's arrogant. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah. And that's the Bond we know, but also this was the movie where Connery became as big as the Beatles, uh, basically, and the Bond mania began. For the next four or five years, Bond was mega big. It was the biggest uh, part to have in the movie uh, movie industry. So, yeah, uh, it changed his life completely after this movie. When Fleming wrote um, Bond, Bond was... A, uh, a guy who came from a rich family, who were business people, who actually were sort of um, aristocratic. Um, he went to Eton, he went to Cambridge. So you have to remember all these things. He would have the money anyway from uh, the family sort of thing. Plus, he was a very good gambler, where he would win a lot of money as well for the time. Uh, don't compare him to what footballers earn nowadays, because that is a different world. We live in a different world. But uh, winning, as I said in the past, two to four thousand or five to six thousand pounds a night or two or three times a week uh, in the casino or gambling, you're going to be very wealthy for uh, those days. I have an observation. All right. And this runs throughout all of the three Bond films we've seen so far. Yes, sure. And that is that no matter what Bond does, he's always doing it in a pair of like Gucci loafers with leather soles. And that's starting to grate on my nerves a bit now. <laughs> what, because, they, because they're impractical or it's a waste of a very expensive good pair of shoes? Well, I suppose a bit of both, really. I mean, you know, um, it's impractical, I think, mostly. It's, you know, you'd skid around. Most of those floors are like concrete floors with um, you know, a, a layer of uh, whatever, polish, varnish over it. You'd, you'd be sliding all over that. Yeah. So yeah. what what we're going to do one day, Paul, and as a group, when we can, we'll visit these places where Bond actually wears the products. They're not Gucci's, uh, they're uh, locks, uh, which are one of the uh, traditional bespoke shoemakers 
in the UK, probably one of the oldest in the world, if not the oldest. Uh, they produced uh, most of the luxury uh, products, footwear for aristocrats, high-end businessmen, and Ian Fleming, I think, and Terence Young used to get his shoes there done as well. So that's who they are, Logs. Uh, yeah, very, very, very similar to Gucci, as you say. Uh, but being Bond, he's not going to wear Italian. Unfortunately, yeah. Uh, no, that's true. That's true. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. yeah so the first Bond girl that we meet, Samir. Yes. Dressed in what appears to be a curtain rather than a towel. Oh, the one uh, at the start. Or, or where a rug. Like... Oh yeah, the the belly uh, dancer you're talking about uh, after the. No, no, no. Uh... The, he goes into the hotel after that. He, he goes into the bar and. It could be the same girl. I think that might be the same dancer, yeah. Yeah, where he looks at his watch and then it explodes in the background. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then, he, then he's into his hotel room, takes his jacket off. and That's oh, brilliant. Yeah, okay. that, the bit that gets me every time, it makes me laugh so much, when the assassin's coming up behind and he clocks the assassin, he just immediately spins her around so she takes a batter and around the back of the head. <laughs> you, you pinched it. How do we feel about it? How would that go down today? You know, that... You know, oh, I can see. Again, but rather than saving her, he spins her to take the hit in the head. I mean, no, but she was part of it. She was part of the setup. So I, she I was know, like, I know, but the but the people of this world aren't going to see it like that, are they? You know, agreed. Yeah, yeah, that's going to be hateful misogyny, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, uh, he's supposed to be Bond, you know, and uh, savior and all that sort of thing, and he just turns her and takes the wallop in the head. Cheers, love. You know, after it's like. Yeah, uh, yeah, but don't. But we have to also be realistic when we. Well, don't say the public don't really see what spies do, but I'm sure spies have to do that in real life or more that we don't like, or the public don't like, and say, "Ah, oh, this generation won't take it," or that generation would have said it's wrong or right. But the fact is, that's what he they were trying to show that when you're a spy, you use anything and anything to survive uh, absolutely um, you, you do any yeah. whatever it takes to to get away from it yeah. and i think it was incredibly lucky to have uh lucked out on the cable being long enough on the on the little heater i think that was fantastic it'd have been really pissed yeah. off if that had been too just too short you know well that was a really bashed uh, it, and it and it just missed the bathtub oh fuck you know? <laughs> yeah, it would have taken a bullet <laughs> But I'm amazed that's even a heater. I mean, you can imagine the electricity bill that thing ran up. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing because that was uh, actually behind the, the ch in the changing room. It's not his hotel, uh, Justin, uh, at the club. So she had given him the keys. He went to see uh, to do what Bond does. And obviously, when he was kissing her, he basically looked, she looked to the side and her contact lenses gave everything away. So he turned around, bang, and yeah. uh, the guy, if you look carefully, I don't know if you know the history of the guy who attacked him. He's meant to be South American, but he is an, he's an English guy who's been darkened up uh, with a uh, polish or whatever. Look carefully on makeup. You can't do that these days because you can get actors from any ethnic background, uh, and it's not PC. Let's, 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 let's uh, put that in there as well. But yeah, so when he put him into the bath and he flicked the heating there's a story about that um they use some sort of special high uh, it wasn't um high voltage lights so really bright lights for that so it wasn't really on or whatever so when they put that on they went in it gave that guy a minus shock 
and it also gave him really third degree burns in real life. That guy who was in the oh. uh, bath, and he had to. It was a month of recovery, basically. So wow. yeah, yeah. So yeah. he he would have appreciated it being a shorter lead as well. Then yes, mm. yeah. Shirley Bassey, Goldfinger theme tune. Do we think is probably one of the all time best? The intro definitely. Yeah. There's nothing else I've heard. I think that is that powerful to begin with. Just she's a phenomenal singer. A phenomenal because she did a few, didn't didn't she? She did Goldfinger and she did another one. She diamonds are forever. Yeah, uh, I mean. I, no, nothing's ever going to beat Live and Let Die by Guns N' Roses, for sure, but Shirley Bassey... I was, sorry, uh, can I just intervene there? Um, Live and Let Die was actually done by Paul McCartney and the Wings for the movie, not Guns N' Roses. There's a version we heard when we were at, year, at college. And, and for me, I think that's one of the best Bond, Bond theme tunes. I agree. I've actually got a note on that as well. I, I definitely agree. Shirley Bassey's voice is so distinct. I don't think there's ever been a singer no. that, that carries that same sort of no. that same sort of tune as her. It's amazing. Probably the most iconic uh, of the Bond uh, themes, I would say. Um, I'm not going to say too much, but I think it, the next one after this, the next movie, the person who sings that comes very close to challenging it. Uh, but we'll go on to that when we go into that movie, obviously. But again, in the in the credits, the uh, the females are, are gold because it's gold finger. Uh, we're getting yes. quite close to um, the naked side of things. I think there's less clothes on them. Uh, we're sort of edging towards that that famous sort of silhouetted naked dancing uh, that features yes. all of the. I know I've, I've mentioned this each time. It's not like I've got a fetish with it or anything. It's. Uh, are you sure, Justin? Yeah, very. Um, you know, but we're starting to get close to that, you know, because it becomes it becomes a theme. It becomes something that is done every time. It's just different music and, and, and different uh, things going on. But but ultimately, it's silhouetted yes. women, isn't it? The opening credits as well, I noticed that they, they showed um, parts of uh, From Russia With Love. Yes, I noticed that too. Yes, that, that there was a bit of back pictures in the in the opening credits, yeah, like a like it was a continuing story, which actually I thought was quite quite a good idea. But I've said this before, of course, at the end of each film, they they're actually telling you what is the next film. Um, yeah, the end, the end the credits. End, this yeah, one the end credits. They say you know the next one is this. They and obviously they stop doing that later on down the line. Said in the end credits, the next one will be Thunder. We'll see you again in Thunderball. That's that's right. Yeah, yeah. It was already planned and named. Yes. So what is the uh, what is the opening city? So after the the credits, we we come into a lovely Miami skyline. City, Miami City. It's Miami Beach. I've actually got a note on this. Um, it's Miami Beach and the hotel. It is the Fountain Blue. Actual hotel uh, is still there, and they've still got the uh, Bond Room. So it's like $2,000 a night or something like that or more. Actually, that, that, I'd stop you there. I was reading about this. That's not true. You can't visit. The, all of that was a set. So they okay. did the flyby shots and helicopters of the, of the actual hotel in Miami Beach, but all of the internal shots and the ones by the pool, you probably noticed by the pool, they were just in front of a screen. They were all yes, built. Yes, right. They're all purposely built. So you can't visit. I mean, you can go to the hotel, but you can't actually visit the specific rooms or anything like that. Don't exist. No, they've got they've got a room that is named the Bond Room, which was meant to be the room, 
Oh, they've, 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 they've emulated it so it was filmed here even though it wasn't actually here but it was filmed here you'll see it here so they've named a room the bond suite yes that's right yeah i see that that makes sense yeah that makes sense. it's probably publicity it's like anything it's like uh, let's uh, get on the sort of uh bond because um... you can clearly see it's a green screen when they're down by the pool and he's putting on a very fashionable towel um, onesie that um, there's a green screen behind him. It, yeah, that's very tough. obvious um, because yeah. it also gives it away that he's not in America. Because if you, you know, the lady says uh, to say hello, Felix, and she says hello, and then she, he says goodbye, Felix, say goodbye to Felix. And she goes, mm, and they hits in the bum. If you listen to her accent, that's not American, that's very English or very British accent. And if you're in America, knowing Bond, he would find a local lady if you get what I'm saying he wouldn't really take a a girl from England would he or a lady I should say from England so tell us a bit about Goldfinger Samir okay Goldfinger Earl's Goldfinger actually was named after a real person uh, a architect uh, architect uh, who actually built one of the most uh, iconic buildings uh, near the A40 in London and his name was a Goldfinger right and him and Ian Fleming went to uh, Eton together. And I think they also went to university together. And because Gold, uh, Ian Fleming didn't like the sort of buildings that Goldfinger built, it was like, you know, in those days, it was considered uh, modernist buildings, concrete jungles, that what we would say now. Yeah. And he was building them. And Fleming didn't like that sort of building. And that's where called the character Goldfinger, and it was actually the full name, his first name and his surname, Goldfinger, weren't actually named after the guy he was this designer. I actually quite like Goldfinger as a character. I quite enjoyed the portrayal. I find it quite drawing, actually. The actor was um, Gert Froser, I think. Gert Froser, yes. pronounced. He was um, in... Austrian? No, it was German. Didn't look that up. But uh, I think he was only in three other films other than this. He wasn't a, he wasn't a prolific actor. No, I think he was in a... Uh, he's German. And I think uh, some people actually protested uh, about him being in certain movies or being in movies because I think he had a uh, Nazi connection during the war. Uh, and his voice was actually dubbed in the movie because of his strong uh, German accent. Yeah, was that? Yeah, he was. He was born in Germany. Yes, born uh, February twenty fifth, nineteen thirteen. Um, it's Gert Frober. And can you sort of uh, also check up about the Nazi connection? Because I'm sure I've read somewhere he had that. I think it's on Wikipedia. I'm not hundred percent. I can't remember, but I've read it somewhere. I've seen it somewhere. Well, I thought he played the character really well. Um, I did. I did quite like him in the in the role and. There's little humorous moments as well. You know where uh, after the golf match where he uh, tells, "Don't miss a bond, don't cross my path for game, blah blah blah," and then he gets odd job and he goes, points at his head and he throws it, and um, he sort of uh, throws it against uh, that sort of uh, statue where the he chops his head off, the statue's head off, and he goes, uh, "What will the uh, club secretary uh, say?" And he just looks down, rubbing his nose. He won't say anything. I own the club. And yeah, it's very Donald Trump. His... It's very Donald Trump, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That, that was the way he did it. Was amazing. You could you could you could sort of imagine th that being a, a sort of a modern day issue, isn't it? With that golf club, he was having terrible problems with, and 
you know, having, having a bodyguard like odd job and just saying, well, they don't want to say anything because I own it. The uh, actual um, golf club itself, it's um, coming back to that. It's a very famous golf uh, course called uh, Stoke Park. Um, they've used it in Layer Cake and a rock and roller. Oh, with Daniel well. Craig. With Daniel Craig, yep. And uh, rock and roller, another um, guy with Vinnie Jones, wasn't it? Vinnie Jones? Yeah, Vinnie. Yeah, he was in. Yeah, he was in that, and um, yeah, it's uh, the reason why they used it. It's close to Pinewood. It's literally five miles away from Pinewood Studios. People do not know that, and it's still um, used for movies, um, used for uh, special uh, events, and launches for movies as well. So that is Stoke Park, um, where the golf scenes were done, and Goldfinger was the first one to use it for that. Now I've played I've played golf quite a bit, and Justin, you've played with with me as well. I have. And those fairways are an absolute mess on that. They were awful. They looked like semi rough. Um, and there's one particular part where um, Odd Job gives Goldfinger a driver, and he's in the rough. And then yeah, the next cut you see him, he takes a swing, and it's with an iron. But uh, it's just one of those things that if you've played golf, there's no way you try and take a wood out of the rough that's mental you just it is, which yeah. wouldn't happen no it, that's quite you need, we need a very strong arm to do that <laughs> well you just wouldn't be able to it just you would no, no, do nothing no you wouldn't no um just going back to um the 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 actor there the Gert Frober um there is a link actually he I've just found it um he's political party from 1929 through to 1937 he was an actual member of the National Socialist German Workers Party which is the Nazi party so that's where the connection is. Interesting. So I can just draw us draw us back. Um, mm-hmm. the, the golfing scene was sort of past uh, one of my notes, actually. Um, maybe sort of Bond showing a bit of his naivety again in the hotel room with women and, you know, managing to get himself bashed on the back of the head again. Uh, you know, you can see a, an intruder uh, through the eyeball of a contact lens, but he misses one when he's trying to get a, bo- a Bollinger out of the fridge. And, and we see the girl dead, obviously, painted in gold. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, of course, we, people may not know that you, you actually can't paint a human body from head to toe completely. Otherwise, the skin will suffocate and, well, you, you'll die. Yes. Um, but actually, in the film, they, they actually explain that. They say there was, he actually says, oh, there was a small patch at the base of her spine to allow the skin to breathe. Is that, is that genuine, though? Or is that just bollocks? It is very, it is genuine. Yeah, I mean, we may get comments saying it's not, but to the best of my knowledge and having looked at this, yeah, it is. And, but, the, but the point is, in the film, she, they clearly wanted her to die. Now, I didn't understand the relevance of him saying that. Oh, there was a small patch at the base of the spine to allow the skin to breathe. And he actually said it in the movie. But I'm sure that they did not want to kill her so she was always going to be fully painted in gold. It's almost like you're saying, so what, it was an accident then? They just wanted to paint her in gold, but she died by accident? No, you misheard that. No, but Bond said, it, Bond explained to M that she wouldn't have died if there had been ah. a patch left on the base or you know the base of her spine or, or anywhere. He, she see. wouldn't have died if that had been the case. I see. That makes more sense, but they wanted her dead. So it's not as if they didn't, if they made a mistake and didn't leave a little patch exposed because that they... You know, the, the purpose was to kill her. Exactly. So, yeah. 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 So, so again, in a, in a way, my the question is still the same. Why, why would you 
explain that? Why would you still explain at that point that, oh, she wouldn't have died if you'd left a small patch exposed? Well, because it's it's there for the audience, isn't it? Because the audience at the time would probably think, well, why the fucking hell are you bothering, you know, painting this woman gold? You know, we've got to kill her. Mm. And it's just explaining it for context of the movie and for the audience benefit, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, it's a very elaborate um, painting. And again, um, I'm just going to say in M's office, uh, seen afterwards, that I believe, although it wasn't clear on this one again, the painting on the mantelpiece was the same as with Russia with Love. It didn't change this time. I was going to ask you about that if you wanted to uh, point out the picture in M's office, you know, and then and then there would be a long silence afterwards. Yeah, maybe my tumbleweed moment. Um, but it's it's just things that I've noticed, and 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 I guess I it just continuity from my perspective, my commentary uh, with things that I'm spotting in each film. I, I'm sure we've all got little things we're sort of spotting, and I think people, are, you know, with the cat being thrown onto the thing, and Money Penny actually does it herself in this film, of course. You know, say, look, you're not the only one that's cool. Yeah, that um, that that death scene where she's painted in gold, the Jill Masterson scene. Um, I, th- I thought the use of music throughout all of that was pretty damn good. It was quite sinister music. And I think the music throughout this entire film is a damn sight better. Yes, yeah. You can tell the uh, production value or the level of um, um, uh, budget has gone up for production. And in return, that's been amazing what they got onto screen for, I think it was $9 million or something like that for Goldfinger. Now, and one of the things, uh, yeah. One of the things I know you're going to be able to explain, Samir, uh, because yeah, sure. it, it, it flunked me a little bit, maybe Paul, um, you'll know as well, um, is the brandy thing in the, in the next, when they sat around the table and they're drinking some brandy and they're talking and he, he sniffs it and, and he says something and, and, and M sort of like, oh, yeah, maybe he's got a point. I think that that, uh, yeah, if I, if I can just interject there, I think yeah. that that's just a, a case of um, portraying Bond becoming even more confident and he actually knows quite a bit. Yeah. And it just puts him, he's like the new and up and coming, isn't he? Whereas yeah. M's kind of the old school and even the fella that's talking is an old school and Bond's very keen to make an impression. He's the up and coming agent. So the fact that he knows these things. Well, the other thing was... Um... Don't forget, they're all trying to portray another thing. He's, he's intelligent, he's smart, he knows his women, he knows his drinks, he knows his suits, he knows his yeah. cars. Because M so, sort of sniffs it and sniffs it and yeah. sort of looks a bit confused and looks at Bond and just say, yeah, actually, maybe. Well, well the reason why he looks right. at him, because uh, um, if we do say, he says, he's uh, got a tent of barzois or something like that mixed into the brandy. And obviously, the fact is, in those days, what they try to say, these guys are snobs, basically, who know their drinks. Because it, it was a, a fact in those days, the rich could only afford certain sort of brandies or certain drinks. And this is what it is. It's about snobbing, uh, being snobby as well, snobbinish mm. uh, sort of thing. Um, and both of them, obviously, were probably Cambridge or Oxford students, uh, even M and uh, the governor himself of Bank of England and Bond obviously is mm. so that's what it is it's about being snobby it's about the lifestyle of those uh, days as well but well, I found um I think the most fascinating part of that and 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 I love this sort of thing and I know Paul you do as well uh was the the Nazi gold that was unwrapped in front of him um 
and the reference to that, which they say, oh, there's, there's plenty of that or whatever the case may be where it came from. But of course, even in recent history, they thought they had found in Poland the, um, the Nazi gold train. Uh, it was a very rough block of gold, as if it was, it was hastily cast and stamped. Is that um, the, the location they mentioned? It was like under the bottom of a lake or something? That's right, yeah. yeah. There is, is there, uh, some. Is there any basis in, in fact in that at all? Or is it just made up for the movie purposes? No, I think oh, what, in terms of this gold in the, in the movie. Well, in terms of the location where they said that they found they, it. Or, they had no, no, they had no idea. That, at this time of this movie was made, they'd have had no idea. They would have known that there was uh, a huge amount of missing uh, Nazi gold. Um, but if, they, I can, uh, if I can just, uh, sorry, cut you there. I think they have always had clues or had sort of uh, information that the Nazis did somewhere in Europe uh, dump gold in cases in some lake. Well, it's not just gold, is it? Because there, there is there are the hundreds of, if not thousands of missing artefacts. Because, of course, the Germans... That's right. They, they, they commandeered everything. They stole everything, you know, yeah, and, even and hid everything. Art, yeah, arts, gold, statues, religious things, you know. And but because we're were... talking about gold, that's why I just mentioned gold. That, that's the only reason, Justin. Yeah, you're right. I agree with you on that. Yeah. But there's another movie called uh, The Austrian Connection or Salzburg, Salzburg Connection. And it's, that's the same sort of thing where they are trying to find some Nazi gold and they do find it or some of it, uh, in this lake. So there's always been a myth. So um, I was then going to sort of draw on and say that this is the first time we see sort of uh, Q's headquarters and then playing around with, with gadgets and guns and etc. Well, I was going to go back a step before that, and that's go, going back to the money penny scene. It's only brief, but my interpretation of that was is that the way that she threw the hat on the hat stand and Bond was kind of like, mm, fair play. You know, that kind of attitude, that kind of look on his face. That to me sort of showed that she was almost an equal. She was the kind of the only woman that might be equal to James and that might challenge him and keep him interested. And the rest of the women he meets out in the field are just kind of, you know, bits of fun. But her, I think it portrays that, it puts it in the subconscious that she might be the actual one that he should be really with all the time. Well, of course, she does later on in the, in the more recent film. She becomes a field agent, doesn't she, Money Penny? Well, basically, she's a. That's what they were trying to imply in the end. That yeah, she that, was that's a what I'm saying. Uh, yeah. Yeah, maybe that's what the, they were kind of leading it up to. That so you're absolutely right in what you say is that she she's an equal, you know, and um, and they're leading up to her doing more of all, you know, is it capable? She has more capability than we think she has. Yeah, it's uh, like uh, I was saying, Paul. Before uh, it was a risque sort of scene. Uh, for those days and very advanced uh, or modern because uh, as you say they took this um, sexism, uh, sex wars out of it and say okay you may be female but she can do what Bond can do and it was probably the first modern step towards modern times basically and I think Money Penny's always been that till the later movies obvious when the same actress was playing it because obviously her and Roger Moore had changed and Bond had changed etc but we'll come to that later on. Yeah, so you want to go back to um, the whole Q scene where he's walking through all the gadgets and stuff and then ultimately leads to the um, Aston Martin. Yeah, our first glimpse of the DB5, yeah. Okay, I've got a background story of that if you guys want to hear an in interesting fact, part of uh, Bond history. Um, 
as as you remember, he mentions when he comes into um, Q's head office uh, and he talks to Q and he goes, where's my Bentley? And he says, it's headed stay. You're not allowed to use it. This is your new vehicle. The fact is in Goldfinger, the novel on the book, he was actually driving a DB3. But obviously by the time Goldfinger came out, DB3 was a little bit out of date and it was an old model. And it would have not gone with Goldfinger because it was still uh, like a 50s production. And obviously we were in 1963-64 for this. So they used the DB5 there on a chassis of a DB4 because they had to produce uh, that fast. So we've got a DB5 uh, DB on a DB4 chassis for the Goldfinger movies. So that was one fact there. But the other fact was they weren't going to use uh, Aston Martin as a first car. It wasn't their first choice. The first choice was the uh, E-Type Jag. Yes. What you see in the Austin Power movies. Yes. Which is, I think, the reason why they used it in Austin Powers, because it was a homage to what should have been used in the Bond films. Yes. But what happened was um, when uh, the Bond producers approached Jaguar, uh, they basically said, yeah, you can use uh, E-Types, but we'll charge you uh, £5,000 for it. And obviously the idea was to say, hold on, we're giving you this publicity, a uh, product placement. Your car's going to be world famous. It's with the probably the mo- the biggest uh, superstar on well, the yeah, screen at the time. Yeah, they're kicking themselves now, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, they are. And uh, what happened was, uh, obviously, uh, the pro- uh, producers and directors thought about this and those uh, negotiated, and they wouldn't budge. And Aston Martin heard about this. So the CEO of Aston Martin phones up um, Albert Broccoli and says, by the way, we've got a new car coming out, DB5. Uh, would he be interested in using it? Had the DB5 come into, into production uh, for, for purchase at the time of this film, or was it a bit like the DB10? It was basically, it was going to be produced after me. So it was basically saying, this is what's coming. As I said, because of that, they, they uh, basically had to use a DB4 uh, chassis. So even then, uh, the, the actual new chassis hadn't been produced yet. So they just basically got the shelf DB5. The engine, I think, was a, a hybrid of DB4, DB5 engine. And as I said, the CEO phones Albert Broccoli up and says, do you want to use uh, the car? Albert Broccoli turned around and goes, we would love to, but how much are you going to charge us? And he goes, no, 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 free. That, that, and that's how they came. And they went, okay, we'll take it. And that's how Essen Martin got into Bond because they said, we don't mind. We're getting publicity for it. We're not going to charge you. Even though they crashed into a wall of fine with studios. Yeah, exactly. They didn't care. They said, uh, everyone will know it as the James Bond car. And basically it was one of the highest selling cars in the 60s after that, once it went into production. I would learn to drive if someone was to give me one of those. I love that car so much. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful car. Yeah, it really is. They have, uh, if if you're interested, um, they actually reproduced them in 2020. The same one, replicas, for the uh, from the Goldfinger uh, movie, with machine guns, with a water sprays. There's only there's two things, unfortunately. One is the price. Another is it's not road legal. You can use it on a track. 
Otherwise, you've got everything in there. Got the uh, radar system, everything. Oh, that radar system can fucking do one. Uh, the noise, the constant beeps of those. Yeah. And they, it was it was on the CIA ones and everything. The constant beep, beep. I get why they done it because they were trying to inform the audience that something was happening. It was just that kind of sound over. But God, that drop me fucking mental. I'd, I'd smashed it out. I suppose it's when uh, uh, your um, what do you call it? Uh, iPhone or uh, Samsung or whatever, and you're using the map a Google map or whatever to find a place and they talk a turn right, turn left. It's like one of those things, but in a bleep. Yeah. Uh, annoying. It's a little bit annoying. if you get it. So I agree with you. That whole section of the movie and the car chases and stuff, all, I didn't understand why Tilly Masterson was so in a hurry to get past him, the sister of Jill who died earlier in the film. Yeah. She was just like pounding the horn, trying to get past him on two different occasions. It was a case where she wanted to uh, find where Goldfinger was. The first one was, I think, the reason was to get a high up the hill so she could get aim for him. Speaking of that woman, that actress, the worst actress ever in a Bond movie. She was a very, very attractive lady, but yeah, not a very good actress. The way where she pretends to sort of say, oh, there's a, there's a uh, station, fuel station there. And that was like within five seconds of him asking about the ice. Uh, there's no ice in that part of uh, Switzerland, is there? Yeah, this this time of year, there's no ice, he said. Yeah, so trying to catch him out, uh, her out, sorry. Also at the petrol station, they stop in at st- station, and she says, uh, uh, Fraulein. Um, but apparently the part of Switzerland they were at, it's all French-speaking. So a little yeah. bit, of, uh, a bit off there. Yeah. I, thought, I thought her acting was just so shit and wooden. I, could, I was glad when she died, you know, when she got the hat to the head. Why, why it didn't decapitate her, I don't know, but uh, I'm glad she died. Yeah, it just, it just, knocked, yeah, it just uh, didn't have the same effect as a statue, did it? It just sort of... Uh, um, well, it snaps a neck, basically. That's, yeah, uh, that's what, what it was. It so, odd job, because, you know, that, that whole hat-throwing thing is the first time you sort of see that odd job is a, is a dangerous character. What, what's his story? Odd job is an ex-wrestler, as far as I remember, and um, he's from Korea. Uh, in the movie, I think, um, and that's a uh, yeah. In real life, he was a wrestler, sorry, yeah. So that's what his background is, and that's why uh, they uh, brought him in it, to play that part because he had the big bill, obviously. And um, it's like what Fleming always thought: if you weren't European looking, you were a enemy. In those days, if you read the books. That's how he describes most of the bad guys, and, and that's why he was brought in. And that's why Goldfinger is actually, although he's British, he's, he looks German, if you get what I'm saying. And that's the reason why they've brought those two actors in, because try to get it close as possible to uh, how Fleming used to describe people. They had odd oddnesses, basically. The airport they're at, I couldn't quite work it out. When he opens that allowed annoying radar, are you talking about the bit before uh, they go to Geneva, where the Royal Choice has been put into the yeah, that's aircraft? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm a little bit confused as well with the airline as well. Yeah, it was like British United or something airlines. Very odd, and the fact that James Bond had the DB5 parked up pretty much on the runway. He said he wants to take his car with him, and they probably gave him special permission to get that close. Uh, that's the only thing I can think of him being so close. Otherwise, I've never had my car that close on the runway. 
Yeah, but then I would love to take my car board. Yeah, but then you know you're not in the 1960s, so I think it's probably the explanation is probably correct is that he was going to load it on the back of a plane and take it with him. Well, I I was a bit confused by that because of course we later find out that's how he gets away with smuggling his gold is by fabricating body parts of the Rolls Royce in gold. But can you imagine how heavy? that car would be with gold wheel arches and gold doors that were made to look like a car. I think that's quite a common thing with gold finger, like um, Reddit threads and stuff, is people do always query that. Is that, well, that would thing would weigh fucking tons. How on earth? Yeah. Okay, depending on how much was fabricated as gold body panels, but I'm gathering in order to make that worthwhile, it would have been a few, wouldn't it? No, but if you uh, listen to him where um, Conry's listening to him when they're melting the gold, they want they were gold-plated. So once they get into Geneva and um, there's a few car chases, a few shots fired, etc., and he looks to infiltrate that... Um, what is that? Is that it's a manufacturing plant or some, some industrial unit that they're all at? Um, and Goldfinger showing around and stuff. Obviously, quite a major plot scene is revealed there. Goldfinger isn't just smuggling gold to make himself rich. There's also the um, the communist Chinese are involved. It's funny how much China is get, is mentioned in these um, in these films and books. Mm. Yeah, it's it's funny because there's always this impression, wasn't that that China was the secret third power? Uh, uh, between the Soviet Union and America, he will start the war uh, some way or another. But the fact was, at the time, China was not what we know China today. It was a very poor country uh, and people couldn't even feed themselves. But yes, it was like the fear of communism. That's what it was. It was a agenda against the uh, socialism, communism, etc. And that's why it, it was like a, what I would say, it was a propaganda basically part of the movie that if we're not careful if our agents can't stop these sort of people this could happen well i think yeah at the time at the time particularly the movies anyway particularly at that time 1964 um there must have been rumblings in china of the whole communism and stuff because you had the um the cultural revolution in i think 1966 where mao pretty much came to power and that was it china was fully communist and another thing was um because I think, um, if I remember correctly, China uh, in 1947, Mao came in, but I think it was more of a socialist country, and then it became a communist country under him, and then different things happened. But yes, you're right, it was basically boiling uh, up to the Cultural Revolution and stuff like that. Uh, and if you notice, he wasn't working for Spectre. Yeah, I didn't. I looked that up, actually. I, I looked that up later on this afternoon before this, because... Um, was Goldfinger actually a member of Spectre? And I can't find anything that suggests he was. He was just... He wasn't, no. He was just a criminal. <laughs> yeah, he was a criminal who was uh, supporting the Communist Party in, uh, in China. Or getting supported by the Communist Party in China, I would say. But the torture scene with the laser. Oh, can we not? I, I, I was hoping <laughs> we are going to skip past that bit. Again, I draw back to the... Why do we have to have these fucking elaborate killing death attempts just shoot him <laughs> we're now you know we're now strapped to a table with a laser going for his bollocks i mean i oh, just come on that, 
So that's a very interesting uh, say, uh, uh, story behind. Uh, well, no, well that's an interesting it, story behind another elaborate attempt at this. Yes, yeah, so, so, I think so, I, know, I might yeah. know where Samir's going with this. All right. Yeah. Uh, 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 go on, Paul. I'll, I'll let you. Goldfinger says something about the bond, your opposite number, has given me information. Or something along those lines. There's a certain suggestion that somebody within MI6 might have turned. Well, that was, I think that was a bit of the story, but I wasn't going to go for that one. I was actually going to tell you about the scene, how it's produced. Um, uh, basically, what they had, they had someone underneath with a uh, one of those heat guns, and they had to do a line sort of thing, and they had uh, a chalk marked uh, near. Conry's uh, crutch, basically. And if it had gone an uh, inch or two wrong, he would have basically had his balls uh, burnt. They had to put a colour in for the laser because laser was invisible on um, screen. So they put a colour into it and that's how it was produced. So that was a special effect. So I'm just sat there under uh, on a rollers or whatever, going with a torch. Uh, blowtorch, whatever it is, you know. And there was I getting all deep and uh, intellectual with the who who did turn in MI6. <laughs> and you come with the fact that some geese with a lighter underneath a table is just nearly burning the Connery's bollocks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Both equally important, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I think for Connery it was important, I think. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I just, just found it irritating. Yeah, I suppose that's, but, you know, these elaborate death scenes set up and stuff, they are a little bit. A little bit annoying at it, times. It, it but then, is just a, it's a constant, isn't it? That's the thing. But then the thing is, if they did shoot Bond, well, that's it in the series. Yeah, that's it. It? yeah I know. It's no excitement. It's not TV, is it? Anyway, moving on. We meet Pussy Galore. Yeah, not my favourite of Bond girls. Really? Yeah, really. I do not. I do not think uh, act act. You know, acting wise, I think she was very good. But in terms of overall look and mannerisms and stuff, no. Nah, yeah, impressed. because in the actual uh, books. There was a hint she was a lesbian. That's why she's like a tomboy. Well, is that the hint, or is this the attempt to say that, you know, uh, female, the first strong female doesn't need to be male dominated, don't fuck with me? No, if you if you read if you read the book, it does hint that she's a lesbian. Obviously, they changed it for the movies, where she is strong, uh, like you say, she can be equal to Bond. Yeah. And uh, yeah. That's why they had to change it, uh, because you can't have in 1960s. I don't think the audience would have uh, appreciated her being that. But it, it wasn't allowed in the in the. 60s. It wasn't allowed, no, because I think um, the 67 or 68, where the law changed in England, so no, it wouldn't have been allowed anyway. So yeah, that was one hint. And she was, the, at the time, she was the oldest Bond girl, uh, or the actress who played her, Lorna Blackman, was the oldest actress to play uh, a Bond girl at 37 years old till uh, recently right. so that was quite interesting that's why i think paul if you look at her she doesn't have the same sort of appeal maybe to you because of uh, uh, it's not been ages but the fact is the young the other ones were younger much younger than she was i think she was on older than conry by two years or three years it was powerful uh, independent uh, that's you know and, and also all of her crew were were women well spoken in it did you notice that um all of her crew as well the pussy galore crew they all had the 1960s pointed tits yeah 
Joe, Joe commented on that torpedo tip, she calls it. Yeah. Well, you, you can still get them. They're uh, pointing bars, uh, pointing bars. Another f interesting fact about uh, Pussy Galore, uh, it was actually, uh, her name was spent on American radio stations, uh, especially the Bible Belt. There's that funny bit in the plane where um, Bond comes round and she's uh, stood, stood over him and uh, he, she says her name and he goes, I must be dreaming. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, I, like uh, I wonder what he was dreaming about now. The, the the reveal of the plan. You know, they're in they're in Kentucky and they got got that golfing table and his house there, and the big reveal. I'm still a little bit confused as who he was revealing the plan to. Were they they supposed to be mafia, Italian mafia? Yeah, it was all the families from different parts of America or parts of families. That whole presentation was really elaborate as well. Can you imagine trying to resell that house? And here's the bit where we present <laughs> our evil diabolical plans. It was bit... very Doctor Evil out of Austin Powers, that part, wasn't it? You know, uh, very much so. I, I, again, though, hugely elaborate, you know, with that massive map that was just showing the small... <laughs> but during that scene, they, they say, oh, the table's moving. Oh, my goodness. Oh, where's that map going? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, they the, commentate the over... Yeah, the table's converted into a, into a map. What is going on? They yeah, they, they sort of commentated over every single thing that happened. Yeah, to sort of like really explain it to the audience. Yeah, now. what's going on? Yeah, what are you the, doing? the bit the bit with the gas, but the, the actual the gas comes out of the the, the counter. There's a, there's one of the guys that walks towards it. Goes, ah, oh, the gas, and he's like, yeah, he walks straight towards it. <laughs> Very strange. Yeah, I think he, he just wanted to die quick. That's what I think. <laughs> yeah, but that, that was quite, well, if you think about, yeah, that's why the Austin Powell uh, sort of movie started taking a mickey out of it because that was very much a 60 sort of imagination where there's going to be oh, yeah, these people who, uh, who are from the secret organisation, from the East or wherever, will have all these technology things. Well, the truth was... If you know uh, the history, well, you guys know the history <clears throat> more than I do about military. But the Soviet Union was advanced, but it wasn't as advanced as they showed on um, on uh, the Bond movies. The fact was, um, our military was most, uh, or the American military was much more advanced. But it was just propaganda again, the background. Mm. The um, the actual henchmen, the guys wearing the blue and the yellow sash. All the way up towards the end of the film, I was quite confused whether they were supposed to be Korean because odd job was Korean, or whether they're actually Chinese. But that's on one that was on my notes as well, actually. Interestingly enough, um, you know, are they are they odd job loyal to odd job? Well, I think that no, they were the Chinese fellas. You know, you know, back in the industrial unit back in Geneva, Switzerland, yeah. you've got Goldfinger showing that Chinese guy around and explaining mm -hmm. the plan. They, I think they were his men helping out Goldfinger achieve it. So I think they're Chinese. They're part of the Chinese. I think there's only one other explanation that could be the case if they're odd jobs uh, sort of uh, treat. I think if you remember, it had not been that long. I think they've mixed it with the Chinese and the North Korean sort of thing because it had not been that long since North Korean war had ended. And obviously North Korea had become communist. So those people could be Chinese or North Korean, or is a mixture of both. I mean, I don't understand why the guy went into the cell, you know, because he kept going up to the door and winking and all the rest of it. 
he obviously wasn't going to go anywhere. So why would you go into the cell to wonder what he's doing? Yeah, because he disappears suddenly. That's why. Yeah, but he's in you a thinking... cell. He knows he's not escaped. So why would you go in there? To make the movie exciting, that's why. Oh, just... <laughs> <laughs> that's it game over Samir's one <laughs> end of conversation <laughs> what else um, should I say <laughs> should we talk about the car crushing scene then the fella that gets killed I think we should uh, but I, again, my only point to that apart from crushing a, a most beautiful car as well um, is the fact that again we talked about some previous films with the uh, the implied throat slitting in the in the pool? There would be claret everywhere. More recent films that have done very similar reenactments of that type of scene, and it is a complete bloodbath. Yeah, but my my only thought was with that whole scene. Yeah, obviously putting that aside, it's a nineteen sixties movie. You're not going to see all of that. Um, you know, PG PG rated type stuff. Um, was the gold. Now, all throughout of it, I was thinking, well, what are they going to do with the gold? I'm pretty sure the gold is in the back of that car. Yeah. But then, you know, later on, or Job drives it back and they say, oh, they're going to get the gold back. So it completely nullifies that whole thing. And I was like, oh, okay then. Yeah, it's basically what what he did was, okay, put the gold, his gold in the back of his car, obviously, kill the bloke, crushes him up. Because that's what actually, you're right, they've done it in uh, true stories based on the mafia as well, about the same technique. Um, yeah, and Goldfinger loved gold so much, he just could not waste that gold. So, as you say, he transports it back and they separate and melt it down. It's a Lincoln Continental, I think. I was just trying to remember the name of the uh, name of the car. It was uh, the Suicide Doors is pitiless, uh, beautiful. Um, it's what I believe. Oh, god, is that the John F. Kennedy? I thank you, Samir. Yeah, I, I believe it's uh, Lincoln Continental that JFK was in the convertible version of it when he um, was assassinated. Yeah, oh, it wasn't a convertible version. They actually removed the um, plexiglass top from that. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, the bubble. That that is something we should talk about at some stage in in the in the future. Is yeah, I, I watched JFK recently, the Oliver Stone JFK movie recently, and now my head's just right moving. Buzzing, just buzzing. Is that the Kevin stuff. Costner one? Yep. Yep, yeah, that's yeah. right. It's, great. it's a great film. That is a really, really good film. Another, uh, another. if we're going to do that uh, for another time, but uh, we need to cover Nixon as well, Oliver Stones. Very interesting. Mm. Mm. Okay, well, they've put names in the hat. Well, um, maybe come back to them at some point. Yeah, sure. The Fort Knox scene, um, a little bit unbelievable, the way that that gas affects them. Yep, was in um, my notes, that one. Um, completely unrealistic. There's no way that gas would react. I mean, the plan itself was obviously quite unrealistic. You've got about five small aircraft spraying that stuff. But um, some facts about that. I think they had to get they had to get permission to fly that low because I, I think I think the aerial shots were actually over Fort Knox. They had to get special permission from the American government and military to do that. Yeah, I think uh, very likely to be a no-fly zone for sure. In reality, yeah. And it's over huge military bases as well, so... There was two reasons. One, to get that scene. Another, to take photographs of uh, the actual building so they can build uh, the actual set on Pinewood exactly the same with the avenues, with the building, the actual shape, the amount of windows, etc. So no one would turn around and say, by the way, that was really made a... Uh, somewhere else because it's got that missing or got that missing so they had to do that at different angles 
It was quite a good reproduction. I mean, I thought some of it was convincing. It did look like it was filmed in Kentucky. I wasn't entirely convinced, but I thought it was quite good. The, the grass is different in America. That definitely looked like a field somewhere in Hampshire. They filmed that. It didn't look like <laughs> Kentucky at all. Yeah. Um, you know, thistles and dandelions growing in the grass. It just doesn't, doesn't add up. Yeah, I wasn't. Um, yeah, I mean, the plane flies over and they just all drop immediately. I mean, it would have taken time for it. But again, I can't. I get told off every time I scrutinise too much because it's like, well, it's a film and it's dramatic effects, but it just wouldn't be that quick. Well, I think also in the movie, it's, it's later explained that a certain amount of them are, um, they're all faking it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because uh, I think uh, Pussy Galore had told Bond they changed the gas cylinders or something. Well, is that the point then? Is that why it appears to be like that? that because they actually are expecting it. As soon as, you know, as soon as you see a plane... You fall to the ground as if you've been gassed. Was that the whole point to that then? Was that the gas was completely ineffective? It's possible. Just overacting, just to kind of make a point. Mm. Yeah, not only that, I think, uh, don't forget, they were also, uh, try to also indirectly say that Goldfinger wasn't, didn't know how gas would work. So if you had seen that, go, hmm, it's worked in five minutes or two seconds or whatever it was. Yeah, let's go in. And that's and that's the point I think as well, saying that Goldfinger himself was a little bit naive when it came to these sort of things. Because they do drive up past those guys, and again, you know, with the laser cutting out the door. Based on what we saw with Bond, if it had gone that quickly, he would have been split in half a long before he said, "Oh, I know about your operation," you know, um, Glowfield, whatever it was. Um, Grand Slam, yeah. It's uh, you know, the speed that laser cut through that garage door, that roller door. Well. They either perfected it better afterwards or they were purposely just trying to do an elaborate death really slowly. <laughs> Purpose elaborate death, definitely. Really slowly. Yeah. I think it was deliberately try and make Bond suffer as long as possible. Because if you look at that scene, Condry is actually sweating because of the situation with the guy underneath with a torch gun or whatever it's called, or flame fire, or whatever. It was basically done slowly because of also as a music. If you see the music, it's like the suspense music. So they're making it exciting, obviously, for the audience. As you say, if it was at the same speed as uh, when they do it on the round door, then um, Bond would be in half. So it's about uh, satisfying the audience, getting enough, making it thrilling enough for them to sort of sweat as well and, uh, and when they're watching the movie going, oh my God, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And don't forget, it was 1964 when that came out yeah. and everything that Bond did it was the first sort of superhero on big screen. He did all these fancy stuff. There was no one before. The reason why we find it maybe slightly uh, boring or even funny due to the fact we've seen so many movies using special effects that we know that okay, that, that can't be right or that can't be right because of the advancements we made. And of course, the whole thing hinges around again, another elaborate death chaining him to the nuclear bomb. I was just going to bring that up, actually, the nuclear bomb. So the bomb was there to dissolve the gold? No, to contaminate it. So to make it radioactive. So the idea was, was that he doesn't need the gold, but he wants to make the gold radioactive to devalue it. So therefore, therefore the remaining gold in the, on the world, which he had... Control, major control over became automatically more valuable. Yeah, yes, that's that what makes yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, it's quite an elaborate death, you know, just locking him down there. But there's a vault, isn't it? How was he supposed to get out? Just throw him in there with a the bomb. Job yeah, done. you don't to chain him to it. I mean, that's just pointless, isn't it? Did you see when how amazing they sort of also marketed 007 
where it stops at uh, 007 when he's stopping it, a nuclear device. What, it just oh, turned no. it off? Yeah. yeah, when he turns it off, yeah. yeah literally yeah. literally <laughs> flicks a switch. <laughs> it reminded me <laughs> of the IT crowd. Have you tried turning it on and off? <laughs> yeah, well, those like spinning things as well to distract you and stuff. And then what it was was a bloody switch, you know. Yeah. I didn't notice the 007 bit. I didn't notice that, actually. Yeah. So it wasn't very good marketing, was it? Didn't get me. <laughs> so you have to look back. Uh, it does say 007. And you, when you first time you look at it, you go, well, but once you've seen it once or twice, you start laughing as well, going, yeah, right, okay, uh, good idea for the time, but we know you're 007. Speaking of laughing, actually, we've missed out. We just jumped over one of the most important bits, and that's the fight with Odd Job. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 I love that bit because I just love the fact that the guy keeps smiling at him. Yeah. Yeah. Right, come on then. <laughs> It's like the hard kid at school, mate, that you know you're going to, he smiles at you thinking you're going to beat him up. And Bowler Hat gets stuck in the metal uh, cage thing and he shocks him with the wire. Yeah, it, it's actually, it's a fitting death, I think. It's a fitting death for him. It's not quite, a, it's not a disappointing death. I mean, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, I think. It was a great fight scene, quite quite sort of drawn out. because it, it, Again, it reminded me of the fights with, you know, Jaws later on. Um, it, he needs some sort of intervention to kind of win the fight. He's not going to win it by punching and kicking. He, he needs something more. I don't know if you've ever been hit by uh, bullion gold. Poor Justin. I haven't, but I'm uh, sure. No, I can't we... say I have. No. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm sure if someone did throw some bullion at us, uh, we wouldn't be just smiting again. <laughs> Look at that. No. Don't feel nothing. We'll be down on the floor going, oh, bloody hell. What hit me there? Yeah, that would take the wind out of you, no doubt. Yeah, especially full on the chest. Well, he's just throwing him around and karate chopping him. Oh, that, that, yeah, that guy, that would, have, that would have broken several ribs, no matter how strong you are, isn't it? And just bounce The one off. thing with our, our job overall about this movie is the power was, yeah, the overpower of that chop. I mean, that's... Yeah. Yeah. Papa. <laughs> that that irritated me a bit throughout the movie. It's just this, like, back... That's not going to knock you out for, like, three hours. That's not... No. That's not he panics a bit when he when you know when the hat's in the other hand, though, doesn't he? And do you notice how Bond throws it as well? He throws it how he traditionally should throw a frisbee, which is forwards, not like uh, backwards. Well, yeah, if you, if you do it like that, it's instinctively going to go up. That's right. Yeah, it's gonna, you're going to come across and up. He sort of throws it traditionally, sort of down and. Yeah, if you look at it, it's more is faster when he throws it that way. But I'm just getting to the countdown actually, and that bit you mentioned to me and the countdown on the on the clock. But aren't they? Wasn't it a big bomb? The bit that did irritate me was the sort of the sheer lack of effort he was uh, trying to open it with the gold. Now, was it because they're really heavy? Oh, you mean where he's trying to use it as a hammer to undo the? Yeah, he's sort of going. Ugh. It's like he's lifting an atlas. Or is this not a hammer? Well, they're probably uh, made out of sponge or something, mate. Uh, they wouldn't be that heavy, would they? Well, do you reckon they said, "Don't"? Can you please not bang them together too hard because they're made of polystyrene, and you know we don't want all the paint to crack off them. It could be the case. Well, it could be a case where they just want to make it exciting. As we say, it's a movie industry. <laughs> yeah, and, and gold is soft as shit anyway. So exactly, you would not yeah. do an awful lot. No, but did you see there was one funny, well, wasn't funny, bit, but the way that one of the guys, their soldiers, the bad guys died was like he got crushed between the safe doors. I don't know if you noticed that, but yeah. 
that that was like mm. i was wondering actually when that was happening if he was going to just sort of like quickly duck out whether he was actually going to put that in the film or not you know or he was just going to get out the last minute but he'd rather die in pain than get shot that was that was the meaning that uh We'll, we'll sacrifice our life for Mr. Goldfinger, but we don't want to get shot, but we'll get crushed by this bloody 10-ton door. Uh, no, 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 no. We'll sacrifice our, our life for the, the greater good of the CCP. That's what it was. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the CCP, yeah. So that was a very elaborate set rebuilt in Pinewood, was it? That whole internal Fort Knox scene? Yes, even the external was built somewhere. Uh, I think it was Pinewood as well. Uh, so in other words, another very expensive, very elaborate, possibly very accurate, or do you think it wasn't accurate? That's not actually how it looks. The interior wouldn't be uh, accurate, would it? Because they will never, ever let anyone in unless you're no part of the Treasury of the US Treasury Department or whatever, and you've got the secret or special pass. But obviously, they're not going to give that to uh, Ken Adams, who designed all the sets for the Bond yeah. movies. Yeah. I'm going to say, I'm just going to get to the cut to the chase, right? Another shit death for a Bond villain. Just boring death. You had Dr. No that got boiled to death. You had, um, I don't even remember bloody from Russia with Love. I mean, Grant was the, the guy following him around. Yeah, he dies because of, uh, uh, Bond uses his own uh, watch wire and kills him on the train. Uh, so that's how he died I think out of what you're saying he was the most interesting death of a bad guy because it's more realistic absolutely yeah yeah well yeah I suppose absolutely realistic but also because it was more drawn out it was there was a bit more punch and a bit more to it you know you actually you, you wanted him to die and it was like oh go on whereas you know, Goldfinger just gets sucked out of a bloody plane window that's but it they, job done see later right end of movie ending credits that's right. And they had, of course, made reference uh, to, or he had made references twice in the film before. Oh, if you fire that gun, I mean, that's going to do this and penetrate that. Almost like they're leading us up to that. And actually, interestingly, the, the plane that they use, of course, is that uh, has got those square windows and that they realised that that was actually a flaw in aviation design. Uh, hence why um, they became oval. Yeah, the comet suffered with a fault, didn't it? That's right. They realised that it wasn't strong enough in the corners. They had to make them more uh, rounded and oval but I think I agree with you it's like um, also Goldfinger like his age he's out of shape let's be realistic he's not going to be Bond is he very Thunderbirds yeah definitely yeah the model plane yeah I thought that as well but you know <laughs> technology of the day wasn't it <clears throat> yeah and not only that uh, the angle of the aircraft and the way they parachute out and it's like nothing's happened and they the parachute falls on them and they're sort of kissing and sort of cover themselves when someone is rescuing them. Well, let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. How would they have jumped out of that plane? No, this is what I'm saying. Uh, the, from the angle, if you look at the way the plane was going down, there was only one outcome, and that was death, straight, basically. Straight to the engine, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that was quite, I think, very... If we're being too critical, it's silliness. But don't forget, this is James Bond. He's the ultimate uh, spy. He can do anything. Yeah, he can, he can beat God in a fist fight. Exactly, yeah. And don't forget, in later movies, Connery was God, basically, um, in them sort of scenes. If you uh, look, remember The Rising Sun and all those sort of movies. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it wasn't realistic. It was about leaving, uh, letting people live their fantasies. That's what it was about. Yeah, I think at the end as well, I think if, if I was in Bond's position and that happened, I, 
because I didn't particularly like the Bond, you know, pussy galore, I think I would have given her a firm handshake, said, right, thanks very much, and flagged that helicopter down. That would have been me. Done. Well, I mean, you commented earlier about Pussyville being being potentially lesbian, but of course they they cuddled up underneath the parachute, didn't they? So that I guess yeah, that it's just there to yeah, there to change it for the movie. Yeah, it flaws that a little bit, doesn't it? That that theory, I guess. I personally think, to me, I've seen it so many times. It's not one of my favourites. I think it's everyone says, "Oh, that's the greatest Bond movie ever." I don't think it it is personally. Yes. It is the first movie that became the blo- biggest blockbuster or became blockbuster for Bond, made Tron Henry into a super mega star and uh, earned 125 or $130 million at the box office. But to me personally, I'll give it, I'm going to be generous. I'm going to give it seven and a half out of 10. Be very frank. It's not my favourite Bond movie. Oh, we're giving ratings now. Are we ratings out of 10? We'll have to go back and do the other previous movies now we have to re-record all of our conversations <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i'm not i'm not going to give it a rating per se per se no um i did find it easier to watch than the previous two i think that's because it's more in line with modern movies the the pace and the action scenes were fairly yeah. well paced throughout the whole movie so it was easier to watch the other two I think it was um, from Mushroom with Love, I had to watch that in two parts because I just found it a bit slow and a bit, you know, it was an effort to get through. Um, so I'd say it was my favourite so far. I definitely like Goldfinger as the villain. I think um, he's got a lot of personality. I think it was quite, quite a good Bond villain. Um, but poor choice Bongo, I think. I, I think it's the I think it's the first film where we see, as we said at the beginning, where he sort of gets settles into the role uh, and starts to feel sort of comfortable within the role. I think I, I, that's what I'm taking from from this film uh, is that it's it, for me it's the start of him becoming more confident, falling into that bond, and it's a bit more of a um, uh, sort of each film is following a similar sort of theme. You know, it's, it's the trilogy. It's the third film, isn't it? It's the, you know, it's the trilogy point here. Um, and, you know, I'm quite interested to sort of see how he then gets into the next one and into the next one, etc. cetera. Um, the next one being Thunderball, of course. Thunderball, um, yeah. I think there's like quite an iconic scene in Thunderball that uh, we'll get to. But um, if, I, if memory serves me rightly, Thunderball was just... The last time I watched it, I just laughed throughout the entire thing. <laughs> Yeah, and another a very interesting um, title song as well at Thunderball. So that would be very interesting to discuss as well by another great British uh, artist, Sir Tom Jones. So, yeah, that's interesting. And um, there's other facts that I've uh, got about uh, Thunderball that I shall discuss in our next discussion. Mm. But, yes, we have to remember, although I did criticise Goldfinger, it is the movie, the formula that has been used since. So that was the birth of what we know as Bond today. So yeah, there are good bits in it, but as I said, it's not my overall. I don't. It's not my overall favourite movie. Mm. Okay. Well, should we um, should we wrap this discussion up then? I think we've covered most of the the major points in in Goldfinger, yeah. and we'll um, we'll pick it up again for Thunderball. So see you from me. Very exciting. Look forward to the next one. Take care, guys. And I will be back for Thunderball, like Bond. See you next time.